Eric Cornerstone. Uh, welcome to our church family. Special welcome if you're visiting with us today. Great to have you with us. And we're continuing our series today on the book of Revelation, looking at the third letter of Jesus to his church. And so please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. While you're doing that, just a reminder that we are, we are putting together a, a WhatsApp list so that we can be in contact with the church and you will receive a link for that on Thursday's corner post or Christiani might just uh, get in touch with you and, and say if you want to be on WhatsApp. Or she might have just put you on WhatsApp and you can opt out if you like, that's fine. Well, recently one of our brothers here in this church who seemed very fit and well to, to us and to him, underwent a routine medical check. And they discovered something seriously wrong with his heart, something that he just wasn't aware of. And because they discovered this, this problem with his heart, they were able to, to treat that problem. It was a very severe treatment, but it prevented a heart attack. It prevented something much, much worse later on. And so what we saw with our brother is that there was a, a heart problem, an unseen heart problem. And it was only a matter of time before that heart problem was going to threaten his life, if not take away his life. It was a heart problem. It had to be treated, and it had to be treated quickly. But before it could be treated, it had to be diagnosed. It had to be discovered. He had to be made aware of it. And this is very much the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum, we're looking at the letter written to this church by our Lord Jesus in the first century. If you had been able to visit the church in Pergamum, you would have been, I think, very, very encouraged. You would have seen a, a group of Christians who were faithful, who were courageous, and you would have thought, if I lived in Pergamon, I would like to be a part of that church. And, and, and I would like our church to be like this church, a faithful and courageous church. But what we are going to see is that this faithful and courageous church in Pergamon had a heart disease. A problem of the heart. It was only a matter of time before this disease manifested itself, exposing this church to ruin and destruction. And as we read this letter, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. You must ask, we must ask, could this be us? Could the Lord Jesus be describing a church just like us? And so it begins in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamon, and as you know, we are looking at the seven letters of Jesus to seven churches. All of these churches are in Asia Minor, and we're moving in roughly a anti-clockwise direction. So we began by looking at Ephesus, 
then the letter to Smyrna, and today Pergamum. And Pergamum was the site of the first temple in Asia Minor of what the historians call the imperial cult. The imperial cult. And the imperial cult was, in a nutshell, a Roman religion that looked to the emperor of Rome as being a god figure. So the imperial cult looked to the emperor as a god, one of the pantheon of the, the Roman gods. And if you were going to be a faithful citizen in the Roman Empire, if you were going to be a loyal citizen in the Roman Empire, then you had to acknowledge this imperial cult. You had to agree that the emperor was some kind of a divine figure. And if you didn't agree with that, then you were showing basic disloyalty to Rome and to the Roman Empire. And so what the Roman authorities did from time to time, and certainly it was going on at this time in this place, Christians were being required, everyone was required, including Christians, to present themselves to the authorities at a Roman temple, and a bust of the emperor was there, probably the emperor Diocletian at this point, and there was a brazier to the fire, there was a bowl of incense, and you were required by law to take a pinch of incense and to put that into the fire and to say, Caesar est dominus. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And this was required. This was like an oath of allegiance to the Roman Empire. And if you didn't do this, you were seen to be a disloyal citizen, you were seen to be a traitor, and at various times, depending on how strictly the local authorities applied this law, you could face loss of your job, you could face fines, you could face imprisonment, you could face death. And in fact, in the church in Pergamum, there was a man, as we will see, called Antipas, who was put to death almost certainly because he refused to say in front of the Roman authorities, Caesar est dominus. Caesar is Lord. And so this is what is going on in Pergamum. This is perhaps the unique feature of this letter to Pergamum. You need to have this in, in your mind. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And you will see that as each letter is introduced, one of the attributes of Jesus introduced to us in that great vision in chapter 1 is, is attached to Jesus. And in this case, it is this sharp, double-edged sword coming out from the mouth of Jesus. We saw that in, in, in chapter 1, verse 15. What did that sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus represent? It's a symbol, isn't it? It's a symbol of his words and of the, the power of his words. The power of his words to change lives on the one hand for the good, and the power of his words to bring judgment 
on those who refuse his grace and his mercy. So these are the words. Keep this in mind. These are the words of him who has that sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, why was that particularly important for the Christians in Pergamon to recall? It's because those Christians faced a different sword. What was the sword that they were facing? It was the sword of the Roman authorities that would come down upon them and their lives if they refused to make this oath recognising Caesar as Lord, as a kind of divine figure. And so right up front, Jesus is saying, there's a sword that you need to fear even more than the sword of the Roman authorities. And it's the sword of my mouth. Remember that our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Rather, be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And so right up front, Jesus is saying, the one you should really fear is not the Roman authorities who might bring their sword of justice down upon you for being apparently disloyal by refusing to take this oath. Instead, the one you really should fear is the one who has the sword coming from his mouth who can bring ultimate judgment upon those who deny him. And he begins by saying, verse 13, I know where you live. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Jesus sees us and he knows us. He knows our condition. He knows where we are. He knows the struggles that we face. He knows the struggles that you face. And he knew that the Christians in Pergamon lived where Satan has his throne. Now, Satan, and you, you, you might be visiting today, by the way, you might not be a Christian, and you might be thinking, my goodness, I've come to this place, and there are people here who believe in Satan? The people who really believe in Satan? Jesus most certainly believed in the devil. He believed in Satan. And I can tell you right now that Satan is probably very happy for you not to believe in him. Because he can just get along, get on with his work in you and around you that much more effectively. So he's probably very happy that you, you refuse to uh, acknowledge his existence. But let me just say, there's so much more that can be said about this, but just to make this point, that Jesus Christ very much believed in Satan. And we would be very foolish to deny his existence if Jesus very much affirmed his existence. And Jesus says that Satan has a throne. What does that mean? It means that he's been given a degree of rule, a degree of power, a degree of authority. And to the Christians of Pergamum, he said, I know where you live. Satan is enthroned there. Satan has a certain power there. He has a certain authority there. And he's doing his evil work in and around that city of Pergamon. 
Our Prime Minister right now, as you know, is the guest of the American President, Donald Trump. Very interesting visit so far. And I think the mistake, I think we can all agree that the mistake that people always make with President Trump is to either overestimate him or to underestimate him. It's a big mistake to think that, to look at this man and think that he's going to be the, the saviour of all the loans of the United States and the Western world. Even though he might think that himself, it would be a big mistake for others to, to, to make a similar assessment. On the other hand, it would be a big mistake to underestimate the, the man's ability and the power that has been put into his hands. And in the same way, it's always a mistake to overestimate I wasn't deliberately trying to compare Donald Trump and Satan here, but uh, it is, a, in the same way, a, a mistake to overestimate or to underestimate his power. And Jesus says he does have a certain power. He does have a certain influence. And don't we see that? As we look around in our society, don't we see Satan at work and his cruel power being exercised on our neighbours, on our community. Because Satan is a cruel error who lashes people, who enslaves people, and we are seeing it more and more, I believe. Just in the paper yesterday, this, this awful business of gender transformation. What an awful thing that our boys at school are now being told, well, maybe you're not boys. Maybe you're actually a girl trapped in a boy's body. And saying to our young girls and our young women, well, maybe you're not a woman. Maybe you're not female. Maybe you're actually a man trapped in the body of a woman. What a terrible Terrible slavery and deception. What a cruel, dehumanizing thought to impose in the minds of our young people. And so we are seeing our young women in droves now, by their hundreds in Australia alone, presenting themselves at children's hospitals and saying, well, I think that that might be me. Because so many of our young women struggle as it is with their identity. And struggle as it is with their bodies. And struggle as it is for acceptance and love. They're struggling. And then to be told, well, maybe your struggle is because you're, the, you're a man trapped in a woman's body. And so they're presenting in their hundreds. Medical professionals. More akin to Frankenstein, I think giving them drugs to block puberty. Even though the science tells us that these drugs affect the development of the brain, retard the development of the brain, that retard the development of the bones, and may render them permanently infertile. And this is going on. Don't tell me that Satan is not having a throne here when we see such cruelty, dehumanizing cruelty, being spread in our community. 
And he attacks the church relentlessly. Just read the book of Acts. He attacks the church from without by persecution. What's his other main method of attack? From within. Corruption within. He's always at work. And Jesus says, I know where you live, brothers and sisters. I know where you live. You live where Satan is enthroned. Yet, you remain true to my name, he says. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And this is a wonderful condemnation, not condemnation, commendation, a wonderful commendation from our Lord Jesus Christ. You live where Satan is enthroned. He's bringing his cruel pressure to bear on you, but you're standing firm. And I can, I can tell you, as I speak to, to so many of you, I, I see you standing firm in very tough circumstances. It's getting harder to live out as a Christian. It's getting harder to be a Christian, particularly for our young people. And I've talked to so many of our young Christian men and women who are standing firm as Christians, who are not being crushed by peer pressure. They're standing firm in the classroom, on campus, among their friends. And that's, that's art. And that's a testimony to, to Jesus and his love and his strength. And we see so many standing firm. But, here's the but. Despite the brave stance of so many Christians in Poland, something wasn't right. Verse 14. The hard problem. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so despite a church that was courageously standing firm in a godless world, despite a church of people, so many who refused to make that, that uh, confession, that, that Caesar is Lord, and Antipas, one of their number, had even gone to his death. Despite this going on, there were still some within the church in Birmingham who were eating food sacrificed to idols. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that meat sacrificed to idols. Well, of course you can eat it as a Christian. It's just meat. You know, the, the, it, the demon can't sort of reside in the meat. You're free to eat any meat you like, is what Paul says. But if you are eating meat sacrificed to idols as part of a kind of pagan religious ceremony, then that is an obvious denial of the Christian faith and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of the Christians in Pergamon were 
been caught up in these pagan deals, these pagan gatherings, possibly because they had to do that in order to keep up their social contacts and their business contacts. So if, if, if all of your clients are having a feast at the Temple of Jupiter and eating meat sacrificed to Jupiter, then it's not going to be good for business if you don't show a face. And so perhaps this was going on in the church in Pergamon. Some were involving themselves in these pagan meals. And some were being seduced by false teaching. Here it's called the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, no one knows who the Nicolaitans are. We just know that Jesus hated their teaching. He said that in his first letter to the church in Ephesus. And so there are some Christians who are being seduced by false teachers and false teaching. And there's a third category of people in the church who are committing porneia, is the original word, porneia, sexual liberality. It's a word that refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of a man-woman lifelong marriage. And this was apparently going on in the church in Bergen. There were people who were indulging in some kind of sexual immorality, whether it was adultery or fornication to sex before marriage or outside of marriage, or homosexual sex or prostitution, incest, any kind of sex outside of male-female marriage is porneia, and Jesus holds this against the church. Yes, you're faithful. Yes, you're courageous. But some of you are indulging in sexual immorality. Now here I'm, I'm going to catch my breath. Let's all catch our breath. Because we really need to hear this, this next point. When Jesus says to the church in Pergamon, he says some are involved in idolatry, some to false teaching, some to sexual immorality. Yet he says, I have something against you as a whole, the church as a whole. He comes with a warning to the church as a whole. It's a collective singular. The whole church is facing his disapproval and sanction. We need to note that. Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamon, you're doing wrong because you are not addressing false teaching in your midst. And you're not addressing idolatry. You're not addressing sexual immorality. Yes, you are faithful, upstanding, courageous, yet you are not disciplining those who are mixed up in sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, remember there was a man whose 
caught up in sexual immorality in the church, and the church knew about it, and the church was doing nothing about it. And Paul said, shouldn't you have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who had been doing this? The Apostle Paul said to a church in which sexual immorality was happening, but they weren't doing anything about it, he said, you should be weeping for this. You should be mourning. This should grieve you. As a whole church, it must grieve you that this is happening. And so here is a church where, where some in the church were choosing to die rather than to renounce Jesus Christ while others were indulging in filth, sexual immorality. And Jesus says to the whole church, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's a problem in your heart. You're letting this go on. You can't. You can't be complacent about this. You can't pretend this isn't happening. You need to deal with this. Just because some of you are doing so well, and some are so courageous and brave, doesn't mean you should overlook this. You can't. It's a heart disease. It's going to kill you as a church. And we have to ask, Cornerstone, Presbyterian, is this us? Is this us? Are we quietly accepting sexual immorality in our midst, particularly in the area of pornography? To such a foul business Grades when the women who are caught up in this traps and degrades them. Pornography is a, it's a problem for men and women, of course. And it poisons our marriages present, it poisons our future marriages. When I talk about pornography, should we include MA15 movies in sex scenes? Yes, of course we must. Of course we must. It's just not right to watch other people having sex in any context, whether it's in the, I don't care how many Academy Awards the movie from, it's just wrong. It's just pornography. It just, offends our Lord. And he says to us, we, are we tolerating this? Are we putting up with this? We can't. It's a heart disease. It's got to be addressed. So is our greed, by the way. I've got a time for that today. Got enough on our plate. With a scourge of pornography, which is killing so many of our churches, and cutting off so many Christian men and women at the knees. So many who can't serve, but instead, an awful drain on those around them because they're, they're, 
They're trapped in this terrible slavery. And so our Lord says, verse 16, repent. Repent, therefore. And please note that repent is it's a collective repent. The church as a whole. Not just, not just those who are caught up in this. The church as a whole has to repent of this. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, says our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say to you in love this morning, if you're indulging in pornography and things are not going right in your life, things are broken, then I pray that that is the loving hand of Christ for you. The loving hand of Christ will not let you go on with that. But will make your life a misery until you repent. But I pray that in his life he's doing that. That he is coming against you with the sword of his mouth. But the church as a whole is commanded to repent here. The church as a whole is commanded to go into mourning over this. And the great commentator Matthew Henry said, It is the duty of Christian bodies to repent of the sins of others. Does that shock you? It is the duty of Christian bodies to repent of the sins of others as far as they have been accessory to them, even if only by connivance. What does connivance mean? It means winking at something, not taking notice of something. And he's, he's so right. He's saying exactly what Jesus is saying. That we as a body must repent if we have not been willing to address this problem in our midst. Church is a place for sinners, but never a place for complacent sinners. And our Lord commands us to repent and to grieve for our godless tolerance and complacency. And as an elder of the church, we're at the top. We're at the top of the pile for those who are culpable and who need to repent. So I speak to you as an elder of the church who needs to repent if we have been complacent about this. If we have let this heart disease go on because we're being too lazy it's just too hard to, to, to bring this up. Or we're afraid of, of well, if I bring it up with, with this man, he might leave. Jesus said, repent of that. Have that fear, that complacency and laziness. He commands a zero tolerance policy. He commands that we call it out and that we openly challenge it. And that we strengthen the weak and bring the healing of Christ to the sick. Bind up the injured, bring back the strays, and search for the lost. It's been a hard, hard message. It's been hard. 
Do you hear the words of Jesus? Not my words. Words of Jesus Christ. And he finishes by saying, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't shut your ears to this. Don't leave this place as though you've heard nothing and nothing's been said. It has been said. And you have heard. I have heard. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then a wonderful, a wonderful encouragement, a wonderful promise to the one who is victorious. In other words, to the one who does repent of their sin, their idolatry. Their greed. Their acceptance of false teaching. Their sexual immorality. To the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. The manna which rained, that bread which rained down from heaven, which sustained the people of God through the desert. I will give that to you, says Jesus. Here's your choice. Refuse to repent, go on in your sin, and, and you'll be destroyed. Or turn from it, and I will rain down manna upon you to nourish you, to strengthen you for what you need each and every day. And that manna is Jesus Christ himself, the bread of life, who said, whoever, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hear what Jesus is saying. Turn from that awful sin just crippling you, and I will rain down manna. I'll give you myself. I will be in you. Strengthening you, walking with you, imparting life to you each and every day. And I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. And this, this white stone doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, so what are we to make of it? But I know this, I know it's white. And so it's good, and it's pure, and it's holy. And I know it's stone. And so if anything's engraved in stone, it's indelible. It's permanent. And Jesus said, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. I will give you a new nature, a new heart, a new identity. I'll write my name on you. Our brother today was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ, you have been identified as belonging to Jesus Christ. He has written his name on you on a white stone that can never be erased. So church, what wonderful words our, our Lord has said today. He's been severe where it matters. He's severe with our sin. And he does that because he loves us. And he does it because he cripples us and those around us. Repent, he says. And as a church, let's not be half asleep about this. And let's have the courage and energy to help each other to have those hard conversations and to help each other walk in repentance.
and he will bind down himself. He will give you himself. He will give you a new nature, a new name, a new future, a new destiny. Give up on this vow and get everything that's wonderful and good. That's what our Lord Jesus is saying today. And I pray that we have those listening ears. Can I ask three or four people, leaders in the church, men or women, you know who you are, to stand and just to pray a short prayer in response to what we've heard today on behalf of the church. Would you do that? Three or four of our leaders, men and women, you know who you are, a short prayer in response on behalf of the church. Make it loud and clear so we can all hear. And then our musicians will come. Let's pray. Lord, we stand before you and we confess that we are asleep at the wheel. Lord, we pray that you would convict us and that you would make us alive to you. Lord, we pray that you would show us how to respond to you. While Satan sits in this city, we pray that you would show us how to respond to you as a church. Lord, show us what's in our hearts and make us pure again. Only you can do this, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Lord, we have heard you speaking to us. Lord, I pray that you would search us and know us and remove from us everything that is not pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that we, who are sinners, will not be complacent in sinners, that we will self-examine and put our sin to death the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that for each person and for the whole church. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and renew us and refresh us. Amen. Now, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we we bow before your throne, Lord, and we, as your people, plead for your Holy Spirit to please make the life and fear of the Lord in us. Lord, you have shown your glory to the Israelites to help them to understand why they need to stop sinning. Your fear is a, a means for us to understand why our sinfulness cannot stand before you. Lord, you are mighty. You are holy. And it's only through your Holy Spirit that we can understand our condition, our heart condition, and that we have to repent and only seek forgiveness from you. And as a congregation, Lord, we plead with you, please help us through your Holy Spirit understand our condition. Please urge us to repent daily. Each one of us personally 
but also as a group. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, that you would change us, that you would work in our hearts and draw us to your word. Help us not to stay where we are. Sanctify us by your spirit, that we would uh, be more like Jesus. May we truly hear what has been preached this morning in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, give us that, that manner. Stones be scattered everywhere in this church. People, new hearts, new natures, new futures. Lord have mercy, bring salvation to many of you. Amen. Thank you.